This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. All right, let me get on with this because last night we had Rob Hitchcock, former Hamilton Tie Cat, on the show, chatting about this study that came out of Boston University. Very serious study, very scary study. Rob said so himself. Former player, played for a number of years, a lot of years. Hard-hitting player, hit a lot of guys, talked about how, you know, he had blows to the head. And this study, they did autopsies and studies of 111 former NFL players' brains that had been donated to them after their passing. 110 of the 111 showed signs of CTE, of they believe from football, but it's, they don't know yet. They're still looking for more signs. But those are numbers that are pretty convincing. Anyway, 99%, over 99% of the brains of former NFL players had been damaged. So I want to bring in our good friend Bubba O'Neill from CHCH to, to chat about this. Bubba, how are you tonight? Not bad there, Scott. I, I will say that's the worst rap song I've ever heard in my life. It is. Um, it's atrocious. It, it was pretty bad. Um Right up there with Basketball Jones. It's awful. <laughs> but let's go to the football thing for a second, because I, uh, Rob and I talked about this study yesterday, and it led to, I think, the second part of the discussion, and we didn't have time, and I wanted to bring you in on this, because if we're getting to the point now where science and doctors and uh, people who are studying brains and technology, all the things that we're looking at are telling us that there seems to be, at least, Bubba, on a, a peripheral or a surface level, it would seem that there is a direct connection now between high-level football and CTE and brain injuries. It would seem to me that this sport is facing, I was going to call it an existential crisis, but it's more than that. It's a direct crisis. What parent is going to put their kid into football in the next few years, if they're looking at these numbers and these studies and these doctors and these experiments and saying that most people, at least at the higher levels, playing football are going to suffer from brain injuries, at least those that we've been able to study. This, to me, is a huge problem for the sport. Is it really? Honestly. You don't think it is? No, not really. Because, And I'll tell you why. And I'm not being crass here, but who didn't know this? And I and I and I say it sound I say that sarcastically, but I actually do mean it. Who didn't know that 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 playing football could possibly cause brain damage? I would I would ask anyone to if they have the opportunity to go to the field level and watch a football game. And look at the contact that happens on every single play. And I'm not talking about in plays where you know, de- you know, defensive backs, safeties like Rob Hitchcock are launching themselves into the running backs or opposing wide receivers. The, the contact that happens on every single play is enough to cause he- any type of head trauma, a possible head trauma at any time. Because I mean, let's be honest, the the, the brain is something that you know on each particular person. Uh, is protected differently because all of our bodies are built differently, and this is no big surprise to me. But I will tell you this, Scott: this will not. This will reduce. Yes, there will be, uh, you know, some reduction in minor league football because there will be parents that will say no to their children. You can't play, but people will play football, and this will always go on. And maybe there will be a, a, a time where people have to sign waivers so leagues are protected. But this will continue to go on. See, my, my theory on this is that I agree with you to some degree, but it, I believe this will end up being a lower income 
kind of sport that if you are someone who is trying to break out of your circumstances and you don't have money and you can play this game, you will take your chances and you will play this game because football is going to give you, in some cases, the opportunity to make vastly more money than you could ever imagine in your life. But if you're someone who comes from a slightly better middle class, upper middle class, wealthy family, parents are going to find something else for you to do and not put you into a sport that they are starting to believe could be really dangerous. Yeah, but I mean, even if I'm coming from wealthy families, Scott, there may be individuals that are not smart enough to, to do something other than football. That may be what they do best. A particular quarterback or a running back or whatever the position to play that this uh, particular child plays that even comes from a wealthy situation. Parents, the kids have been long for years doing, doing things that parents don't want them to do. See, here's where I disagree with you. And, and I, you're right. You're right on one point for absolutely sure. And that is everybody has known forever that you can get your bell rung and you can have, you can believe at least that there was a chance you could have brain damage. I, I agree with you hundred percent on that one. But the difference is, I think that with these studies now and these, these tests they're doing on brains and things, when you start to look and realize almost every case that they've looked at anyway. Now, I don't know if that's every living case, maybe only those who have passed away have had this. So, but, but when you start looking at the numbers, it becomes pretty concerning that it's not a one in four by the looks of it or one in 10. It's almost everybody. And that's that, Bub, is where I think that things may change, that people may look at this and say, it's not maybe I'm going to have a brain injury. It's I will have a brain injury. I think you could, it, I, I think you could go to the CFL, the NFL, maybe, and I'll even go a step back. You uh, are almost called it something else, but U sports, right? The university level in this mm-hmm. country. If you were to pull every single player that played football right now, Scott, with full asking them the question, with the risk of knowing what may happen to you, future twenty, thirty, maybe even forty, fifty years later in your life, uh, in terms of some type of brain damage, trauma, uh, memory loss, I want to tell you that an overwhelming percentage of kids will tell you, "I will play the game." Yeah, Rob said last night that 100% basically of the guys he played with, if they were told when they were sitting down to sign their contract that there was a very high chance they would have a brain injury, he goes, almost every guy he knows would have signed anyway. Because they want to play. They want to play. That's what they do. But it's not. But, mean, but I'm that, not concerned about them. I, I am concerned about them. My point is the future of the game where I think that the problems are going to come is not with the kids. If mom and dad don't put kids into football at the entry level, you don't have the players later on. That's where I think the game runs into a problem. Not the guys in university now. They're already in the game. They're going to play, and the pros are going to play. I think we're going to see, at the very entry-level point, a drop-off in kids. Scott, right now, there are 250, and I'm just saying, Division I schools in the United States. And I'm going to say a good percentage of them, close to well over 75% of them, have football programs. And I'm not even talking about D2 or D3. There will be kids playing football all over North America, and they won't stop, regardless of what report comes. It's like me drinking a coffee. I know there are some benefits to drinking coffee, but I also know there are some setbacks that can happen when you drink coffee. But I will not stop drinking coffee. Well, no, neither will I. I would die if I stopped drinking coffee. My, my, the risk to my life would be far greater by stopping than by um, than by carrying on and risking that. I, I, I say, you know, I, I just I look at this and I, I I hope 
because I, I'm not someone who wants the sport to die. I hope they can come up with something, whether it's a new design of a helmet or whether it's, I don't know what it is, because I really... There's I, nothing, Scott. No, and I, I that's my fear. I, and, that's and my you, fear. And you've been with me. You've been, you've, you've stood beside me on, especially at Old Iverwin Stadium, when you could stand right there and watch a football game and watch the contact that happens and the high speed of the game that happens on every single snap of the football as an offensive lineman, as a defensive lineman, yep. linebackers. I'm not talking about the quarterbacks and, and, the, and the defensive backs and the wide receivers and the running backs where we see these spectacular hits where we all go, wow! I'm just talking about on a just a, this, after the snap of a ball on just a basic play. Well, watch, contact, a, it happens. watch a replay. If you're watching a game of any level of football, of high-level football, and they zoom in on an offensive or a defensive lineman partway through the game, look at their helmet. They're, all their helmets, all so the guys in the line, are all gouged up. That doesn't happen by marginal contact. No. And the other thing is, the leagues have now put in place rules to protect the quarterbacks and to protect helpless receivers and guys, so you can't take a shot at their head. And yet I always think this is kind of a, a, an odd thing that we're protecting those two guys because watch every single time a running back has the ball, he gets hit in the head. Every single time, unless he runs unimpeded into the end zone for a touchdown. Right. Every single time he touches the ball, he gets smashed in the head because he drops his head and the guy hitting him drops his head. And I've never understood why the quarterback's heads are delicate and the receiver's heads are delicate, but everyone else in the field, it's quite all right to smash the because, crap out of their head. Because, let's be because there's no way to prevent it. Because, Scott, it, it, it's all about, because let's be honest, the, uh, the, the money men in the sport of football are the quarterbacks. And I, I've always said that this protection of the quarterback stuff, to me, is, uh, uh, for the lack of a better word, BS. It's to protect the name players, the Tom Brady's, the, the it's marketing. It's to keep these the people come to see to uh, see a quarterback. People will pay big money and drive lots of kilometers to go see a particular quarterback play. They won't go to see a, a, a linebacker or you know or some defensive player or offensive. <laughs> go linebacker. see the left guard. He's my favorite player. I want to right. see the left guard do his thing. Exactly right. People that you need to protect the quarterback because you need to have the quarterbacks playing in the game. And that's why that they are protected so much because those are the those are the franchise players of the team. And if I own a team and I have guys and I have the rules that you know it's open season on my quarterback, well, I'm going to balk at this. So the league has gone out of its way and told the referees to have these guys protected because football, especially the National Football League, is the biggest, bigger than hockey. Bigger than the NHL, bigger than Major League Baseball, bigger than the NBA in terms of money, monies, and of course, I mean, I won't even go into the illegal money, the gambling side of thing. So this is a big money thing, and yes, I think the National Hockey, sorry, the National Football League, and even the CFL care about you know this report that's come out, and you know they're not avoiding it, they're not lying anymore, but they know deep down this will never stop. Let me switch tack because we've got a few more minutes here. I want to get to one second uh, topic with you because this is, I find what we're going to talk about next sad because I have at home, when I was, I haven't done the math. I was probably 13 years old, 14 years old. It was the early 1980s. It was January 16, 1981 or 1982. I can't remember. Wayne Gretzky and the Edmonton Oilers were coming into Toronto to play at Maple Leaf Gardens against the Leafs. 
They ended up winning the game 8-1. to one. Wayne Gretzky was stopped by Bunny LaRocque on a penalty shot. Mm-hmm. I remember I had seats. My dad got seats right at the front of the rink. He had a law friend who had season tickets, and we got gold seats to go see Wayne Gretzky at wow. the height of his greatness. It was his first year of 200 points, I think. Anyway, my point is, at home, I have those ticket stubs. Those are cherished ticket stubs. Those memories are cherished things that I hold. On my desk at home, I had tickets. We went and saw the game in the World Series when Devon White made the catch up against the wall and the triple play that wasn't when Kelly Gruber tagged Deion yeah, Sanders. Ticket stubs for generations have been your memory, your tie to that particular game that you went to that you remember. The Montreal Canadiens now, they announced, are joining Geez, just about every other team on the planet, Bubba, who are saying no more actual tickets. You're going to either show your thing on the phone or you're going to do a printout from your computer and it's a full page with the barcode. We're not doing actual tickets anymore. And if you really want to get those, we'll give you the souvenir tickets, but it's going to cost you a bunch more money. I think this is a really sad thing for the, not for memorabilia, but just those ticket stubs for generations of people have been the thing that reminded them of a great moment they saw in, when they were there live. I, I'm with you, Scott. I, I have an envelope, uh, a personal envelope of mine, and it's not the, just a small envelope. It's a big, one of those big brown ones that has hundreds of them. And, and I'm, t- I, I'm with you. Stuff from Maple Leaf Gardens, Exhibition Stadium, Argonauts Games, Old Iverwind, like just I could go on and on. Um, games that I've been to in the States. There's one that I kind of, you know, that I fancy was a Monday night football game at the Orange Bowl. Stuff that I've kept. And and even when I say, why don't I just throw this away? I can't. I, don't, I can't do it. Because you're right. It's a, it's, a, it's a hold to the memories of, of, you know, of watching these games as a child and even, you know, as an adult. And if you get and, a picture, if you had a picture or you had a program cover or something else, or even if you caught a ball or a puck, you could get that framed or something and put those ticket stubs in there. Now, I, my son and I were at the Bautista bat flip game a couple of years ago. The ticket stub is a full piece of computer paper, and that's only half of the thing. What do you do with that? Yeah, I mean, but that's... That's I, life. That's the reality. That's, I guess that's life, and that's the changing times that we face. And, um, you know... There's, there is maybe not so much for your son, but maybe generations just slightly after him, they won't know any different. Nope. nope. And that's I, a sad thing, I, in kind of a way. I, I think it's something that is lost in the world of sports. It, not just in sports either. I mean, concerts, uh, other things. You know, last year when we saw Paul McCartney here in town, I don't have a ticket stub from that. I have a full piece of paper. I, that is something that I would love to be able to put up on the wall two ticket stubs with a picture or something from that night. And, and, uh, you know, again, it may seem like a little thing, but I think those are things, especially when you're younger, especially when you're younger, that those take you back to that moment. You got to see your sports heroes. And I, I really think it's something that is lost. It's something that's gone away and, and you're right. They'll never know about it, but I think that's a shame. I'm, I'm with you on it. I can't argue against that. You know, like I, I remember, I don't know how many times entering games with my ticket and pleading, pleading with the ticket, the lady or the man that was taking tickets, that, you know what, I could just show it to him or her and don't rip it because I wanted to keep it whole. I mean, you know, the, 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 you know back in the day, they used to just rip it in half. But I'd be like, no, 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 no. And some would let, some would let me do it and some, you know, obviously wouldn't let me do it. And, uh, yeah, to see that as kind of a something in sports that just kind of fades away 
is, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we're being nostalgic, but kind of sad. It is. I, I, I actually still have at home, not a sports thing, I have the ticket stubs from the concert I went to on our my first date with my wife. I managed to keep those at home. That See, that is intelligent. That is how you stay in the good books to show how much that night meant to me. These are lessons you need to teach me. <laughs> <laughs> Bubba O'Neill from CHH will have a remedial no, course later on. In that category that I am. <laughs> Keep the ticket stubs. That's the key to this whole thing. Bubba O'Neill, always appreciate the time. Thanks. Uh, always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks. I would, I would guess that many of you out there have ticket stubs. I'm thinking of just some of the ones that I've got at home just lying in a desk drawer. When I went and saw Simon and Garfunkel a few years ago when it was still Skydome. When I went and saw, I was down in Memphis at Memphis State driving through the states and saw Emmett Smith when he was playing for Florida run back a 75-yard touchdown against Memphis State. These are, these are things, and you pull out these ticket stubs, and they are memories. And without those ticket stubs, you kind of, you don't forget necessarily, but I, I really think it's a sad thing that that part of our entertainment sports culture is being lost to save, what, a few bucks here and there? I mean, how much can they honestly charge and how much can they save by not using tickets? Sad. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. It's kind of busy right now for Bill Paul. The Canadian Open begins at Glen Abbey bright and early tomorrow morning. And if I counted correctly, and I that's not a sure thing, I think there are 17 Canadians in the field this year trying to end a drought that goes back to 1954 when Pat Fletcher was the last Canadian to win our national championship. We've come close. Mike Weir finished or lost in a playoff to VJ Singh in 2004. David Hearn had a two-stroke lead going into the final round a couple years ago. But again, it's been 63 years since a Canadian has won. Bill Paul is the chief championship officer for Golf Canada. He's kind of the guy in charge of this whole thing. He joins me now. Bill, how are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you? I'm great. You you want a Canadian to win, right? You're Are you allowed to say you want a Canadian to win? Yeah, I think uh, I think we all do. It's um, you know it's been a uh, it's been a desire and a goal, and I I, I think now. Um, you know, more than any other year, uh, in, in certainly in my, in all my sort of 35 years of being involved in this event, the, the quality of Canadians in terms of their golfing, uh, their ability to win is, um, it, it's, it's never been higher. And it's proven with, you know, wins on tour by, uh, you know, by recent, you know, Nick Taylor had won, uh, Mackenzie Hughes, Adam Hadwin. So it, it's, it's strong, and it would be great. We all know what it felt like when we were at Glen Abbey or watching it when, when David came close, and certainly going back to 2004 when Mike lost to BJ uh, in that playoff was, um, I mean, we can all feel it. It was it was certainly heartbreaking for us. So, yeah, it, it would be absolutely fabulous to end that drought. Well, and you only need one guy to get really hot this week, and, and as you say, it seems like we have more guys capable of that right now than we've had in an awful long time. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you look back back to last year with uh, Jared Dutrois and what he did as an amateur, as part of our part of our national team, just came out of nowhere, just was in, just got hot at the right time, and was in the right frame of mind, and was in that final group. And um, you know, he 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 certainly top ten, but he didn't disappoint himself uh, in his in his game. So it's going to come. It's going to come. Uh, it's going to come soon. It's it's not easy to win on tour. And it's certainly harder to win on your own uh, your own home soil. So, but one day a Canadian will win, and let's hope it's 2017. 
because there are so many Canadians doing so well and competing with the best players in the world on the tour, I'm I'm guessing that maybe uh, we don't need the boost, perhaps, that once upon a time a Canadian winning this to this event would have. But what would a Canadian winning, what do you think it would do for golf in Canada, if anything? Or are we already at a point when it would just be nice as opposed to necessary? Um, I, well, I don't know that it's... It's necessary. I, I, I think. I mean, I think a win is necessary by any Canadian. Um, but we've enjoyed that in the last couple of years with certainly the guys winning on tour. You look at what Brooke has done uh, on the LPGA. Um, uh, you know, success at the amateur level. So, so we know we we, we know we can win. We know we're, we're, we know our players, be a pro or amateur, are just preparing themselves better. We know what it takes to win on 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 tours at any level it's just a matter of getting it done and i guess you you know i guess you go back to 2003 when mike won the mike where that is won the masters and what and what we all felt like as canadians i remember when he showed up at hamilton you know to play in our open six months later it was still it was still euphoria and so you know i think when a canadian wins uh i mean we all felt it i mean albeit it seems like a long time ago when mackenzie hughes won um, uh, you know, in the fall, Adam won in uh, Tampa, and it's just you know you still feel that win. You still you just want more now. Uh, I, I think as a as a Canadian, so it it's not easy to win. There are there are more quality golfers, more golfers capable of winning week in and week out on on this tour, on the LPGA, on Web.com, etc. That it's uh, so for Canadian to win, it's uh, it's it's just a great feat, and so. Um, you know, we're and and they all want to win, whether it's here or whether it's elsewhere. It's 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 uh, it's certainly in their goals. Uh, Glen Abbey has been a great location for a long time. Uh, we're going to get to more on that in just a second. But around here, we are, as you know, you and I have talked about this before. We are eager to have the Canadian Open back in Hamilton. We love it when it's around Hamilton. It's it's always a great event. It's one of the best events on the calendar in Hamilton when the Canadian Open comes here. Um, where does that stand right now for? 2019, 2020, whenever down the road, where does that stand? Well, I think um, you know, from our standpoint, uh, we are we. When I say we, I'm talking about Golf Canada, our partners at RBC, and the PGA Tour. We are we are working on our, you know, call it call it short range calendar. And short range being the venues that we're going to play over the next, let's say three three to four to five years. Um, I mean, looking beyond that, we're we're sort of my goal is to get us to a get us back to a permanent home. Um, but until that, you know, until that starts to happen and take shape, uh, we we got to fill the gaps in to that point. And so it's important that 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 the venues that we're going to pick, and more so, um, you know, the, the the marketplaces and the areas that we're going to go, that we do it for all the right reasons. Um, you know, I think we've gone to a lot of great golf courses. Maybe we haven't done a lot of great advanced work, you know, in terms of working with cities, working with provinces to get there. Um, you know, so, so our team, um, I would say we're working on it. We're close to, um, you know, sort of being, being in a position on where we want to be. We're going to take this time. We've got a couple meetings tomorrow, um, you know, to talk strategically on, uh, on where we need this event to be. But, um, you know, we accomplished one one milestone this fall when we got, or I guess it was a year ago when we got RBC to sign um, through 2023. That was a big deal for us. So, I mean, there's a lot of factors. It's not just about a golf course. 
Um, and so, you know, we're, 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 we're working towards that. Hamilton, we've had conversations with them. Um, it's been a great venue for us, been a great market for us. Uh, this tournament has been a success. The golf course is a success. So um, let's just, you know, I guess all I can say right now is that it's on, uh, it's on the radar, um, and it would be, you know, from personally, it'd be wonderful to go back there. I've been involved in the three recent opens there, so it'd be nice to uh, be nice to add a fourth. But we just got to see where we're going to take the event. Just one more thing on that topic: 2019 is a significant year because it's the hundredth anniversary of the first time that it was ever held in Hamilton back in 1919. Is that an important thing for Golf Canada? Are numbers like that important, or are they nice but secondary? Well, I think, you know, again, Scott, I think you go to, I think that's a nice number. You know, again, just to go to a location because it's it's celebrating an anniversary is not the right reason to go there. Um, you know, we need to to ensure that it's the right place for the Open, that we're prepared to go there, that we're staff. Um, you know, we got the right structure in place, both both at Golf Canada and at the club and within the, within the market that we're going to. Um, you know, we've got some strategic goals that we've set for, our, for ourselves that we're working with the, with the tour. I mean, we've taken a look at ourselves, and one of the things that I'm leading is what do we want the event to be, where do we want it to get to, you know, not only tomorrow, as the tour is probably going to embark on a change in terms of its scheduling in the next, you know, two to four years, where's that going to look like? So, I mean, we need to be positioned for all that, and it's kind of like putting a puzzle together. It's not as if you can just start with piece one and two and just start working down. Sometimes you get this piece first. So, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to get everything together until you get all the puzzle pieces together and look like it's going to fit. So, um, it, it, it's... It's it's we're we're aware of that. Um, it just can't be a deciding factor for us. Um, you know, going there for all the right reasons or any other club for that reason, um, you know, will be the decision that uh, um, you know that allows us to go there. Here's the really intriguing part too. Um, you mentioned a moment ago about trying to find a more permanent place for it going forward and finding a piece of land perhaps where you could build a championship course and everything else that goes with that because Glen Abbey is going to become a housing project apparently at some point. Um, in The Spectator today, my colleague Terry Pekoski was quoting you saying that there are three right now anyway final locations that may be in play for this. One of them she puts in quotes with, from you that it's in close proximity to Hamilton. So she couldn't squeeze out of you where exactly that piece of property was. I thought I would try anyway. Is it, is it in close proximity to Hamilton, the place, one of the places you're looking at? Well, I, I, let me just say the word final was never said. What, what, I, what, I, what, I, what I said was, I mean, nothing is ever final because there's always something else that will come up. And, and you know, when I started this uh, process, I... I got to, I think I identified 33 or 35 sites and got it down to 12 and got it down to four. And I always used four initials. I always thought one or two would drop from that list. Three did. Um, oddly enough, and just in conversations, three more kind of came into the puzzle and then one dropped out. So, I mean, right now I'm just, I'm just working with three. Um, and, you know, the only one that certainly has been become public knowledge, if you will, is Vaughn. Um, a piece of property in Vaughan that is, um, um, you know, that I think is a wonderful piece. Uh, the other ones are on are on a little bit of private land. So, um, yeah, there's one in the uh, there's one in the West End, if you will. Uh, and um, I would say, you know, if it's 
if it's, uh, I, I think I gave her, I narrowed it down to Ontario, but I think I did say it's, uh, <laughs> you can, you can, you can certainly look at something near Hamilton. Sure. What is the advantage to, cause the Canadian Open has moved around. I know Glen Abbey has been a, a magnet that it comes back to often, but what's the advantage to having a permanent home or a championship course that is known as the home of the Canadian Open? What can you do there that you can't do with a rotating place? Well, I think first of all, the idea to rotate around was was certainly the right idea in theory. Um, the reality was, as 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 we couldn't get into get into a true rotation of uh, of the kind of golf courses that we wanted to go to, so it it, it became difficult. More times we fell back to back to back to Glen Abbey. Um, a lot of it is, I mean, you have a partner with a uh, with a title sponsor, whether it was the Bell Years or uh, currently with RBC. So, I mean, you know, they have a large input to where you're gonna where you're gonna play it. And I think that, um, um, you know, I think that 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 as we looked at it, when you started going around the GTA, um, you know, to me, you, you just kind of lost a a generation of fans maybe that just when it was at Glen Abbey you knew it was at Glen Abbey you knew where Glen Abbey was the time of year it was whether you liked it or not I mean you knew it was there and so I I think I look at us and our operating model I think it allows you to be more efficient things that um, things that you did sort of in year one the next year you can improve on them and then start some other things to grow um, you can grow a, you can grow efficiencies but you know when looking at a permanent site when you've gone back to, um, you know, all the challenges that we've had, that I've had in the last, um, you know, I'd say 20 years, what uh, Brent and his team have now, um, it, it, things like parking and access to the golf course. And um, it, it just is, it's just something that in my goal was, I didn't want anybody in 20 years to face some of the problems that we face. And so as you look at the opportunity, you look at growing, you look at building a golf course that is not so much for inside the ropes, but it's outside the ropes. And and the circus, and I say that with all due respect, the circus that is the PGA Tour that is more than just 156 players, it's TV compounds and it's new satellites and it's new technology with shot link and 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 you know operational compounds and volunteer compounds and every everything else you've got to have the space today and you got to have the you, you got to plan for tomorrow and so um, I think as we as as I as I started this project I just looked at this thing being kind of a hundred year project how can I get to the finish line how do you incorporate other um, you know other sport be it organized be it be it recreational sport. I just thought of an area that could suit uh, that could suit everybody. Um, what's important to me is that it's not just 18 holes. It's what I just call the placeholder, which is kind of golf Canada village that um, um, you know allows us to kind of practice what we preach in terms of of getting kids and and young adults into the game and out there with an experiential um, you know activity about being on a golf course, on a putting green, on a practice area, etc. So. Um, it, it's you know to me to me it's exciting. I think the event needs to go back, establish a base, and I think once you establish that base, you can grow the event, um, and you and you kind of stop the, pardon the expression, the one and dones. You know you you've gone to a place, but you know you're probably not going back for a few years, five years, six years, so you don't react to some of the challenges that you had. So it just it just is to me a much better model. 
um, that we can get into. Uh, you know, the financial model of being a PJ Tour event has changed a lot. So um, I, I, I do truly believe in going back to a permanent home helps 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 mitigate a lot of those a lot of those challenges. Makes it become more efficient. You can create something for for the spectator, for the fans, for sponsors today as well as creating something that the players are going to enjoy today and tomorrow. Just have a minute or so left here, but at the risk of sounding silly, and I'm not trying to, yep. but what you described very much was almost a Canadian version of Augusta, where they hold the Masters. All the things that you talked about are things they have. Now, you can't replicate Augusta, Georgia. I'm not suggesting that, but it sounds like that almost, that that piece of land and what they have there would almost be the model for what you're looking to do. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I go to Augusta, so there's a lot down there that you would model after. I guess if I had to look at one, I'd probably look at the Players' Championship as has more, you know, closer together and just something that has evolved over the years and has been able to adapt. Um, you know, I think Augusta, in its in its own right, some of the changes that they've made have been have been outstanding. I think under Mr. Payne's leadership, uh, it's become more spectator-friendly. So, I mean, all all of that is important, and and I think as you look at Glen Abbey, which is which we're challenged not only inside the gate in terms of space, but outside the gate in terms of access and parking and stuff like that. That I mean, all affects a fan's decision whether they're going to come out and watch the RBC Canadian Open. So, um, you know, the more that we can look at mitigating that, the better we will we will be in the future. I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you to pick a Canadian to win because I think that would be unfair. But from Bill Paul, from the guy who knows golf around here better than anyone, what Canadian is playing the best coming into the Canadian Open right now? Oh, boy. (laughs) Who is that? Well, I mean, again, it's it's, it's like any player. It's hard to say. You know, it's like you look at Matt Kuchar, who had who had a great uh, you know a great week at uh, at Birkdale last week. Is he the hottest? Like, I mean, on paper he might be, but you look at what he went through in a major and in England at the British Open, and you know he might just have a little bit less in the gas tank than what you think if he if he had that performance at a regular win. So, I I, I mean, I just you love these questions, all. right? You love it when someone yeah, asks no, you these I, questions. Yeah, no, I mean, I. <laughs> You know what? Why don't we just have them all play in the final three or four groups and, uh, <laughs> and let them decide themselves? Uh, that's that's the uh, very politically astute answer. Uh, Bill Paul, Chief Championship Officer for Golf Canada. Canadian Open kicks off tomorrow at Glen Abbey. You'll probably see him if you go down there. You'll probably see Bill around somewhere. Bill, thanks for the time tonight. All right, Scott. Thank you. It is. Um, I, I really do hope. I really do hope that it comes back to Hamilton soon. Because if you've ever been, if you're listening and you've ever been to the Canadian Open at Hamilton, you understand what I'm talking about. Even if you're not, and i got to stress this, even if you're not a diehard golf fan, right? There's a lot of people who go to have a nice walk, to see the place. You don't always get to go in there if you're not a member. But it is one of the great events that we have here. I mean, there were a lot of people. Remember back in 2004, 5, 6, whatever it was when the cycling championship was here? There were a lot of people who were not cycling aficionados who really enjoyed that because they experienced something they don't always see, and it was really at a high, high level. That's what the Canadian Open is. And I've talked to more people who have gone to the Canadian Open when it's in Hamilton who aren't necessarily diehard golf fans. There's a lot of them who are. And the the ones, though, who are just experiencing something for the first time are like, man, this is unbelievable.
it, I mean, it helps that it's a fantastic, beautiful course that the players, and remember, these are the best players in the world. The players are raving about this place in Hamilton. I mean, it, we don't even, uh, our sense of self-deprecation is such that we're always blown away when someone who comes in from somewhere else in the world goes, you guys got one of the best courses in the country. We're like, we do? Like us? You're talking to us? Hamilton? Yes. Yes, the players love the course here. And it's a fantastic course, and it's a great setup, and I'm, I really, really hope that it comes back soon. I, it would be great if it was on the 100th anniversary in 2019, but before they get a permanent home, I hope it's here at least one more time. Because really, there are very few things, and I would encourage you, there are very few things better on the entertainment Hamilton lineup, and I would encourage you, even if you don't even really like golf all that much, if it comes back here, even if you buy a ticket on the practice day, so you don't have to spend a ton of money and you just go take a look, I would really encourage you to to give it a whirl. I think you would be surprised at how much you would enjoy it, even if you don't really know what it is that you're watching. You will figure it out, and you will enjoy it. I'm telling you, it's, it's a great, great thing. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The guys and women who are the big stars in Hollywood, none of them are living on food stamps. Let me tell you that. The superstars in Hollywood, they are making bank. But here's the catch, and here's what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. We are going to count down the 10 actors who are the most overpaid in Hollywood. And when I say overpaid... The way, and this is from Forbes magazine, so it's a reputable source that came up with this. It's not just, oh, this guy stinks as an actor, therefore whatever you pay him is too much. We're not doing that. This is actually based on finances, on economics, revenues, how much money, how many gross sales there were for the movie, each dollar of that against how much the actor or actress was paid. You'll catch on in just a moment when I get on with this. It's 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 actually very simple. It's pretty basic math. Even I can do this math. And that means it's pretty basic math. Because me and math, math and I, do not get along. Here we go. Let me start with this one. And again, you may be surprised that some of these are considered the most overpaid actors in Hollywood because you will know their names. And you probably like these actors. Many of these actors are in movies that I like, you like, we all like them, but they're... We'll explain why they're overpaid. Number 10 on the list, most overpaid actor in Hollywood. Will, I'm going to say the name. You have three seconds to yell out the first movie that you recognize that this person was in. You ready? Bradley Cooper. Limitless. Okay. I was, I was I'm surprised th- too. <laughs> I was thinking of the, what, what the was hangover. the hangover? Ba- the hangover. <laughs> All right. So here is why. So Bradley Cooper, big time actor. Very, he was in... Um, what was the one? Uh, um, oh, there's so many, and of yeah, course, yeah, he's been in a bunch. he's been in a million movies he does lately. Big ones, and then he does little indie ones too. So here's what here's how they measured that he is overpaid. For every dollar that he was paid in salary for his last three movies, how much money came in? So it'll be a ratio of dollars to his dollar. Bradley Cooper at the box office brought in twelve dollars and ten cents. For every dollar paid to him. So you're paying him a big salary and he's bringing in only a return of $12.10 for every dollar of salary paid to him. Get that? Okay. So there's, there's how this thing works. That's how 
Forbes magazine is doing this, meaning Bradley Cooper is the 10th most overpaid actor in Hollywood. doesn't make him a bad actor. He's a very popular actor, good-looking guy in every movie. He's in comedies. He's in dramas. He was in, um, what was the one? The, the one with the gambling. He was the Philadelphia Eagles fan. Um, you know what I'm talking about. I think it won an Academy Award a few years ago. Anyway, all right. Bradley Cooper, number 10 on the list. $12.10 for every dollar paid to him. Number nine on the list. This one is going to make some people outraged that we're calling her overpaid. Because this is a beloved actress. Actor? Are we still allowed to call them actresses? I'm not even sure anymore. It, it differs from person to person. I'm not trying to be sexist. I'm calling her an actress. If the proper thing now is actor, so be it. Whatever. I think she's an actress. Anyway, $10.80 for every dollar she made. What, Will, what is one of the most beloved? Meryl Streep. That would be my other guess. Oh, it's not. Not Meryl Streep. But who would be the second or 1A as far as beloved actresses in Hollywood? Everybody loves this person. Every movie she's in, they go, oh, she's so lovely. She's such, I wish I could be friends with her. Who do you think? Anne Hathaway? Or maybe that's just me. Julia Roberts. Oh. Julia Roberts, the ninth most overpaid actor in Hollywood. The studios only make back $10.80 for every dollar they pay her in salary. Again, lovely actress. Wonderful person, it seems. Who knows? I, I'm starting to sound like um, Jiminy Glick. Wonderful. Oh, wonderful. my God. Uh, <laughs> I love Jiminy Glick. Yeah, Jiminy Glick. All right. Number eight on the list. I don't... I uh, See, I don't love this guy. I find this guy to be... Leaving aside his acting, he's a good actor. But I find him to be kind of pompous and patronizing and politically a little too sure of himself and hypocritical in what he says about the environment. Am I giving you any hints yet? And what he does as far as how he lives and travels and conducts his business. Any guesses yet? I got two guesses. I'm going to go with George Clooney. No, no. So it's Leo. Leonardo DiCaprio. Number eight. This is the guy who, you know, preaches to the United Nations about how we should cut back on fossil fuels and everything else and then goes out on charter yachts and lives the high life and flies in private jets all over the world. You know, if you're going to tell, I don't mind if you're going to tell me how to live. I mean, I'm not going to necessarily follow your advice, but I don't mind, but you got to be doing that. Don't just talk to the little people about it while I'm off cavorting and living the high life. Anyway, $9 and 90 cents for every dollar of salary he gets paid. And that's in his recent movies because once upon a time in Titanic, he would have been one of the, probably the least paid, least well-paid. He would have been one of the most underpaid as opposed to one of the most overpaid. Anyway, number eight on the list, Leonardo DiCaprio, $9.90 the studio made for every dollar that he made in salary. Number seven, did not expect to see this guy on the list only because I don't really think of him as that big a star, but clearly he must be getting an awful lot of money to be finding himself on the list because all of these, the reason they're on the list, none of the actors in here have movies that are bringing in like a million dollars. The point is they're all making a ton of dough so that whatever the amount is, it's cutting into the the profits. Number seven on the list, $9.20 for every dollar paid to him. Mark Wahlberg. 
Not a guy that I would have thought. I, I don't think of Mark Wahlberg as one of Hollywood's biggest actors. Yeah, I mean, he's in a lot of stuff. Yeah. And he's sort of a leading man, I guess. But, you know, I've always had trouble. I've always gotten stuck on the Mark Wahlberg thing as Donnie Wahlberg's brother. Or Marky Mark. Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. I know, but it's <laughs> that that's kind of where I, you know, I, I'm stuck in that time frame and I, I don't. Last thing I saw him in was the last Transformers film. He spent the whole movie just looking confused at a sunset. That was the entire <laughs> thing. Just Mark Wahlberg looking at stuff. Um, so Daddy's Home, it says, one of his last movies was a big hit, but The Gambler was awful. And that really brought, as far as proceeds, and that really brought down what he makes. So number seven on the list. Did I say seven? Yeah, seven. Mark Wahlberg, $9.20 for every dollar paid. Oh, it's going to get much, much, much lower. Believe me, these are the tip of the iceberg actors. Number six, which is a sad story to me. It's sad that this guy's here because once upon a time, number six was a really funny guy who had a string of really funny movies. And now watching him and I'm going to use air quotes to say act because he, it's almost painful now to see him on the screen because it is, I don't even know what you call what he does. It's not acting. It's, I don't know what it is. I don't have a word for it. $7 and 60 cents for every dollar paid to him in salary, which again means this guy is being paid a fortune to be horrible at what he does. He used to be great when he was in Happy Gilmore, when he was in, what other ones was he in? He was in a bunch of really funny movies. He he was in the the Wedding Singer. The Wedding Singer was another one. Adam Sandler, number six on the list. That's very good, that invitation. Very well done. I've been told when I actually get legitimately angry, I just sound like Adam Sandler and everyone laughs at me. The Wedding Singer was a fantastically hilarious movie. Happy Gilmore is still one of my favorite movies. Even the first, I hate to admit this, even the first Grown Ups had its funny moments. Yeah, I liked that. Now... Honestly, watching Adam Sandler on film is like watching an MRI. Like, it's just, what am I watching? What? There's nothing funny about this. This is just horrible. I think he just wants to hang out with his friends. <laughs> I, I think that must be what, anyway, $7.60 for every dollar paid. And they're still deciding they got to sign him up for everything. I think he has like a 12 film contract with Netflix. They just, we, we need a movie made. Adam Sandler's our guy. Bring him in. I, I just got to throw my pitch. I want to see him make a movie about the monkey selfie case that's currently in, in courts in San Francisco. Have him as the lawyer representing a monkey. It'll be terrible, and it'll be the epitome of Adam Sandler films. It's 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 sad what has become of, uh, of Mr. Sandler. Number five on the list. You said his name a few moments ago. Uh, $6.70 for every dollar paid to him. And I'm trying to think of the movies that he's been in that, um, my favorite of his movies, I think, I can't think of another one that I would like better, was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Coen Brothers. If you've never seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And you have Netflix, oh please, when my show is over in 15 minutes, watch Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Fantastically hilarious, weird, but hysterical movie. Uh, But $6.70, Money Monster didn't do all that well. Hail Caesar was a critical success, but not good at the box office. And Tomorrowland, yeah, Tomorrowland kind of went, uh, George Clooney, 
is number five on the list. George Clooney. How could George Clooney be one of the most overpaid actors in Hollywood? But again, it's not a lack of popularity. It's not a lack of skill, unless you're Adam Sandler. It is the fact that they get so much money in their contract now that it's harder and harder for the studios to make money when they have to pay them all this much. And by the way, I finally watched Ocean's 11. I don't know how many years ago Ocean's 11 came out. Not a bad movie. I've got Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13 queued up on Netflix, but I haven't got around to watching them yet. I don't know if they're any good, but George Clooney, I don't dislike George Clooney, but there you go. $6.70. And now it starts to drop even more. Oh, this guy, number four on the list is you love him or you hate him. And you probably can do an impersonation of this guy too. Will. this would seem to be one of those guys that you might have on your, um, let's try it <laughs> on your resume. Um, Zoolander 2 did not do so hot for him. Um, But most of his sports movies, Ricky Bobby, uh, Back to School, when he went streaking the quad, you know what I'm talking about yet? Yeah, yeah. Will Ferrell, number four on the list, $6.50 for every $1 paid. Huh. That's it, $6.50. I I am not going to attempt an impersonation, by the way, because... I would probably break a mic shouting or something. Will Ferrell. See, I, I'm, I suppose it says something about my maturity level. I find Will Ferrell hysterical. Same. And a lot of people, it's the opposite. They, they're like Adam Sandler with him, but I, I think he's absolutely hysterical. All right. Number three, this is the guy that I think a lot of people would never have expected. The, the name, for a lot of people, they may not even not know who this guy is. Number three on the list. And I don't even... I, I don't know that I've ever actually seen him in a movie, so I can't speak to whether he's a good actor or not, except for the fact that he's obviously being paid a whack of dough. So somebody thinks he's good. He is a handsome dude. There is no question he's a handsome dude. Maybe that plays to his, well, that certainly plays to his advantage. Number three, $6 for every $1 paid to this guy. Channing Tatum. Now, do you know who Channing Tatum is? I, I do know Channing Tatum. He can He can act when he wants to. That's what I think. He was in Magic Mike XXL. He was in Jupiter Ascending. Uh, last year, he was seventh on the list. He's now up to third as far as most overpaid actors in Hollywood. Six dollars for every dollar paid. Number two on the list. He was in Concussion. He played Once Upon a Time, ironically, then Muhammad Ali. Um... What else has he been in? He's been in a million different things, although lately, nothing that I've really wanted to see. Once Upon a Time was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Will Smith, $5. There you go. He was not getting paid as much back then. $5 for every dollar paid. We won't be playing that song on TV theme song, Name That Tune, tomorrow as a result. But Will Smith, number two on the list of most overpaid actors in Hollywood because he is only bringing in $5 for every dollar paid to him in salary, which brings us to number one. Now, number two was $5 for every dollar paid in salary. Number one goes down to $2.80. Basically, this guy is sucking up almost the entirety, at least 50% almost, of the money coming in for every movie that he makes, which says two things. One, his movies aren't apparently, I guess, 
bringing in all that much money. Or if they are, his salary is so high now, keeping in mind, and I'll give you a hint before I tell you who he is, keeping in mind that the biggest things he's been in lately are sequels to a very successful franchise. So he's doing the same character over and over. I'll give you a little hint. The story is that his famous character that is making him all this money and not making the studio all that much money is based on, you know who it's supposed to be based on? Do you know who he's allegedly impersonated to come up with his char- his famous character? Oh, oh, um, I'm... Mick, Mick, uh, not, no, Keith, Keith Richards. Keith, Keith Richards. Richards. Keith Richards. Yes. Yeah, so Will knows who I'm talking yeah, about right yeah. now. Number one, $2.80 that he has brought into the studio for every dollar that he gets paid. So it's one in three, 30% of the entire revenue for his movies in the last three movies that he's made have gone to him. That, of course, Johnny Depp is number one on the list from Pirates of the Caribbean. And yes, that character, whatever his name is, I can't remember. Captain um, Jack Sparrow. Thank you very much. Is apparently a an impersonation of Keith Richard. I was going to say Cliff Richard. Cliff Richard was a whole different guy. If Keith Richard from the Rolling Stones, who I don't even know how that guy's still alive, quite frankly. I think all those drugs that he took. Have I, did you ever read, totally off topic, did you ever hear that story that I think Keith Richard wrote in his autobiography that he was once so desperate to snort something to get high that he found this powder and he snorted his father's ashes. Okay, you know you've got problems when you're snorting your father. But that's who Johnny Depp apparently was impersonating to come up with Captain Jack Sparrow. Anyway, $2.80. That's it. So when you go to see Pirates of the Caribbean 15 or whatever number we're up to now, just remember when you hand over your money and you pay for all that ticket, that money is going directly. They've actually got a Brinks truck out back of the theater to take that money and drive it directly to Johnny Depp's bank and the money is going there. He is, according to Forbes magazine, the most overpaid actor in Hollywood. Does it make him a bad actor? No. Again, it doesn't make him a bad actor. Just nobody makes a higher percentage of revenue coming in than he does. There you go. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.